there's a plane waiting at the Charlotte airport. So if you're ready to go, let's go. You can't preach after that. My goodness. Well, Angie, where'd you go? You uh, mentioned that the reason the light- ladies light the candle is because the lighter is childproof. Um, it got you back there, didn't it? Just a little bit. <clears throat> the story of uh, Christmas begins in Matthew chapter 1. Mary has this extraordinary encounter where the angel comes and tells her that she is going to bear God's son. And that raises all kinds of issues for Mary. We'd have a fascinating time doing a character study on Mary. But one of the issues is that she is betrothed, kind of like engagement, and her husband wants to put her away because of this. The social implications are significant. Everyone is going to assume that she has been very loose morally, And an angel appears to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And he says that this child that Mary is bearing is of God, not of immorality. And that Joseph, as the man in the relationship, you have the responsibility to name this child. Let me tell you what you're going to name him. You're going to name him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. You ever been told what you're going to name your kid? Maybe if you're married, your spouse has told you. This is what it's going to be. I doubt you have had an angel appear to you and tell you what you're going to name your kids. Then there's a reason that is given for why you're going to name him this, because he will save his people from their sins. And this morning, as we finish Matthew's Gospel, and we see God's attestation to Jesus' sacrifice by his glorious resurrection, we have the opportunity... uh, perhaps with more clarity than ever to give back to Jesus the very best Christmas gift that we can give, and that is obedience to his great commission. In a strange way, as Matthew kind of concludes his story, chapter 28 is the capstone of his entire uh, presentation of the life, ministry, teaching, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's short. It's 20 verses. And there's so much more that could be said and so many more stories that could be told. And yet with great economy of speech, Matthew provides a fitting climax to the story of Jesus' life. And so as we journey through Matthew chapter 28, we'll see three very simple points, I think, increasing in intensity as we walk through how Matthew narrates this story for us. For our first point, we will look in verses 1 through 10 at the resurrection commands, kind of a mini-commission, by the angel. The resurrection command, or what I'll call the mini-commission of the angel. Listen to God's word. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake, because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his robe was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken from fear of him that they became like dead men. But the angel told the women, Don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been resurrected just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is going Ahead of you to Galilee, you will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. And just then, Jesus met them and said, Good morning. 
They came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. I love the way Matthew 28 starts off. Because you know there's no such thing as coincidence. There is no such thing as accident. Matthew 28, verse 1 says, Now, after the Sabbath. What's the Sabbath? It's the one day in seven that is holy unto the Lord. And instead of resurrecting Jesus on the Sabbath, God goes, take a little time out. We know he's in the grave for three days. Let's make sure that that third day happens in secular time. Not sacred time. Let's wait until the sun sets on the Sabbath in the dawning of the new day in normal time. Regular Joe time, not priestly time to make sure that this resurrection happens. Isn't that, isn't that just kind of cool? That God is sanctifying normal time. And the same is true for you. The only time that God deserves in your week is not a couple hours on Sunday morning. He deserves 24-7. And he is in the business of redeeming the everydayness of life. It's wonderful to see. That's not even really a point. That's just kind of, it's in there in the text. It bears the saying. So we're told that just after the Sabbath, these two faithful Marys are approaching the tomb. We know from other gospel accounts that they're coming to embalm Jesus' body. His crucifixion right before the Passover uh, made for a hasty burial, and they want to come and they want to take special care of his body to make sure that it's embalmed properly. As they're journeying there, they're wondering to themselves, John Gos- John's Gospel tells us, how are they going to get into the tomb? Because they've got this big rock that is there. Fortunately for them, when they get to the tomb, the stone has been removed because an angel has shown up and he's taking care of everything. And when we get to this story of the angel, there's not a lot of verses, but we're given a ton of information about this angel, and it all alliterates. So, Emmanuel, this is for you, brother. Um, Look at what we're told about the angel. We're told about his arrival. It says that he descends from heaven and approaches the the stone, the tomb. Here's what is amazing. Did you see what it says about his descent? It says he descended, and there was a causal relationship. And there was a great earthquake. So I can't help but um, I can't help but imagine. Okay, why the earthquake? I've seen Superman, and so have you. Was this angel faster than a speeding bullet? Did he break the sound barrier in his descent, or you know, kind of like in a Lord of the Rings kind of way? Did he float down gently and touch the ground, and because of his great might as a warrior of God? The moment that his feet touched the ground, boom! What happened? We know that the angel's descent is connected to the earthquake. The angel's descent is the cause of the earthquake. And he descends and he approaches the tomb. Now it's interesting to note as you read through the Bible, the angels show up in Jesus' life at really critical times. Luke chapter 2, shepherds in the field at night. And an angel shows good tidings of great joy that shall be for all people. For this night in the city of David, there is born Christ the Lord. And suddenly the sky was filled with a vast multitude of angels singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with men with whom he is pleased. The angels attest to his birth. When Jesus as a young man is sent into the wilderness to be tried by the devil, when that is over, the angels come and they minister to him. Luke tells us that at the Garden of Gethsemane after the stressful prayer 
for the, the, the ability to obey God's plan for salvation that the angels attended to him. And at his resurrection, the angels show up here as well. We see their arrival. We see their action. It says that he came and he took the stone away. How, how does it say it? It says that he um, rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. Now, what you need to understand is the way that the stone, we think that it worked, was something that was kind of large, like a grindstone, kind of circular. And um, anybody have uh, sliding glass windows or sliding glass door? You know how sometimes it gets off the track and you've got to, you know, hold your head the right way, stick your tongue out to get it back on track, kind of jimmy it. The stone was actually, there was a trough, there was a, a rut that that stone would roll into. So as it would go along, go along, go along, kadunk, and fall into the rut, it was really difficult to move. It stayed in the track. And so it wasn't just moving it. I mean, it was really a difficult process to get this move. Here's what I love. It says that he rolled the stone away. The, the better way to understand it is because the angel is sitting on it and you don't sit on a circular stone. He picks it up, tosses it to the side. It falls over and he's sit back chilling on it. Powerful. It's an amazing thing. So we see his arrival. We see his action. His appearance is described with great detail. He looks like lightning. I don't know what that looks like. Got electrical charges? I, I don't know. He's white as snow. What is amazing to me is his affect. He shows up and what happens? Amazing irony. Because as he sits on this stone that guarded this tomb, inside that tomb was a man who was supposed to be dead, who was alive. And outside that tomb are men who are supposed to be alive and guarding the tomb who are acting like they're dead. That's amazing to me. It says that not only did the ground shake, it said the guards were so freaked out, they just started shaking, and then, boom, you know, it's like a Benny Hinn revival, man, people falling out all over the place. In the words of the great prophet Elvis, there was a whole lot of shaking going on. What shook more, the ground or the people? I don't know, but it says that they appeared like they were dead. And here's the thing that is so solemn about this. Jesus hasn't even shown up yet. This is one of his servants. And it produces this kind of terror and awe and glory. And then he makes, uh, here's a, a, a fifth A for you, Emmanuel, an announcement. And in the very announcement, there's a little bit of a slight rebuke. He says, hey, ladies, don't be afraid. Uh, these guys, they'll, they'll be all right. They'll wake up here in a little bit, have a bad headache, you know, figure out what's going on. But y'all, don't be afraid. Because I know that you're here looking for Jesus. Guess what? He's not here he has risen just as he said. And if I was the angel, the rebuke is the just as he said part. Because if, if I was making the announcement, I would say, you know, Tomasina, I know you're here looking for him. He's not here because he's arisen just as he said again and again and again. There's at least three predictions that Jesus makes of his crucifixion and resurrection. So he's saying, why are you looking for the dead among the living? I love it here. He said he's not here. He's not here. There are some liberal uh, forms that want to call themselves Christianity but strip it of all of its power who want to say that Jesus' resurrection isn't bodily. You know, if we found Jesus' body, we would still be able to believe because he wasn't resurrected bodily. He was resurrected spiritually. The problem is, then the angel would not have said he's not here. He would have said he's now everywhere. 
But the fact that he says he's not here means he has a body that is located in time and space somewhere, not here. So this is affirming the physical resurrection of Jesus' body. Jesus' resurrection is a physical reality, not just a spiritual reality. It is a spiritual reality, but it is a physical reality too. Here's the question for you. I don't mean to make you think too much on a Sunday because I know this is not a work day. Why did the angel have to throw the stone? Toss it to the side? Was Jesus on the inside going, hey guys, I'm up now. You can let me out anytime. Did Jesus need the angel to move the stone? Why did the angel move the stone? You have probably read this account and never even thought about that question. He wasn't letting someone out. It's this. It's that the angel knew that the proclamation, even though Jesus had predicted it, was still produced out. So what does he say to the ladies? I love this. He says, he's not here, just as he said. Come and see. So the whole reason that the stone is removed is so that skeptics can get their questions answered. Even here in Northside Baptist Church, when we gather together for worship, there are people who struggle with the resurrection. They don't believe it yet. Yet. The church most definitely is for people who believe. But shouldn't it be the kind of place that people can bring their doubts to? Shouldn't this be the place where they can come and see? They may not be able to get into a plane and go to the tomb, or Kylie, his uh, holy sepulcher, uh, for your quiz here this week. They may not be able to go to the tomb, but isn't the church the place where they can come and see? Jesus is justifying our doubts and our skepticism. And he's saying, don't just sit on your hands and don't do anything about it. Look, check it out. Ask your questions. Ask the best questions that you know how. Because when the tomb is open and you have doubts, the resurrection will withstand your empirical investigation. Oh, you want to put your hands in his side and in his wounds? Okay, Thomas, come on. You want to see the place where he lay? Come on, Mary and the other Mary. Come and see. And the come and see becomes the basis for the other command that the angel offers. He says, come and see, but he says, come and see before he tells them to go and tell. Friends, the order is really important. If you have not come and seen Jesus, what are you going to go and tell? Something that's not the gospel. You have to have this assurance that Jesus is who he is before you can be a faithful messenger. You must come and see and you must go and tell. And so every single one of you are in one of those two camps this morning. Are you in the come and see camp? Is the reality of the resurrection operative in your life? Does it control what you do with your money and your time and how you raise your family and how you spend your free time? And if you have answered the come and see question, what are you doing about the go and tell question? There's no middle ground. Come and see. Go and tell. So it says that the ladies depart with great fear and joy. And you sit there and go, fear and joy? That seems like a really odd pairing of emotions. Anybody here remember when they were a newlywed? Joy and fear? Yeah, so you know what we're talking about. Joy and fear are not mutually exclusive. Man, this is awesome. What did I just get myself into? Uh, Joy and fear. That's it. It's this weird emotion, but they they don't necessarily not go together. It's just kind of strange for us to think about that. And so here's, this this is huge. As they are going, 
and telling. They are leaving, and as they are obeying, what happens? Not only do they get to hear the angel's proclamation, but Jesus meets them on the way. I get the sense sometimes that as religious people, we want to have the tent meeting at the tomb. And we want to enjoy the resurrection reality. We want to enjoy the come and see. We don't want to get down to the business of going and telling. And yet, if the women would not have gone and tell, would Jesus have shown up? I don't know. All I know is that the way the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to be written, it is as they are going that Jesus shows up. And what does Jesus say? Top of the morning to you. What in the world is this? It's earthy. It's secular. It's not spiritual. It's not... Verily, verily, I saith unto you on the, the fourth moon of the lunar cycle. No, it's none of that. It's high. Amazing when we compare Jesus' first words after his resurrection. Hi. With his last words on the cross, why, my father, have you forsaken me? We know now. God on the cross said, why? So that in resurrection glory, he could say hello to his brothers and sisters who have believed in him. It's beautiful. It appears that Jesus and the message that he gives to the women is merely just parroting what the angels already said. While those words look very similar, they are significantly different. Because if you look and compare very closely with the angels' message, the angel's message has just a slight bit of a threat in it. He's not here. He's risen just as he said. Go to Galilee and you will meet him there. What does Jesus say? Don't be afraid. Same message that the angels gave. Jesus says, go and tell my brothers. They sure didn't look like brothers when they were running from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I would think if I was one of those 11, that meeting Jesus on this side of the resurrection would be just a little bit of an iffy situation. The angel just says, you go to Galilee and he, you will meet him, whether you want to or not. He's going to find you. Jesus implies in that, my brothers, it doesn't say this specifically, it implies forgiveness. You're still my brothers. I want to smack you, but you're still my brothers. You're my brothers. There's a warmth and a forgiveness that has removed the threat that maybe was heard in the angel's proclamation. But both the angel and the Lord agree. Good news is for sharing, so go and go quickly and tell my brothers. So as the ladies go about their business of tracking down these disciples that have fled, at the very same time, there is uh, what I'll call a Jewish conspiracy and a Jewish countermission. Before the Great Commission, there is a countermission to try to kill it off before it even starts. And we see this in verses 11 through 15. Listen to what God's Word says. As they were on their way, some of the guards, so evidently they finally woke up, they came into the city and they reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. And they told them, say this, 
His disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been spread among the Jewish people to this very day. So the guards wake up, reporting for duty. Yes, sir. Here's my after-action report. He's gone. He's gone. So what do the chief priests do? They uh, make him an offer that they can't refuse. Say, hey, here's a pile of money. And here's a story to tell. And here's the promise of protection. If Pilate finds out and he wants to kill you for being derelict on duty, we'll make sure that this whole thing is covered up. But just tell everybody this story. Here's, Here's the thing that's funny. What is odd about their excuse? It's the very thing in chapter 27 that the Jewish leaders were trying to prevent. He said he's going to rise after three days, so can we have a guard? Their very excuse is the very thing that they hired these soldiers to prevent in the first place. And, get this, there's a colossal problem with their cover-up. There's one colossal mistake. What is it? Anybody see it? If you were sleeping, how do you know that it was the disciples that came and stole his body? So you woke up enough to make a positive ID but sat there and did nothing? That's even more unforgivable than falling asleep. Here's here's the point. Kids, all right, kids, and, and big kids, if you need to hear this, lying never works. It never pays off. You, well, it might pay off in the short term. But you, you're going to get caught. And, and they lied about the resurrection of Christ. And I just have to go, somebody go, tell me that story one more time. So you were asleep, but you know that the disciples came and stole his body. How's that work? You had like, night vision cameras up so that while you were taking a siesta, you figured out what was going on. It's problem. And the truth is, every other counterclaim to the resurrection will evaporate under scrutiny. You know what Muslims believe? Muslims believe that Jesus didn't die. He had a twin brother. He had a doppelganger. He had a stunt double. You know, time for the cross. Time out. Let's get the stunt double in here. Put him on the cross. Jesus can go and he can be okay. Because a a, a prophet of God can't die. God will protect him huge difference of opinion on who Jesus is between Christians and Muslims. There are some who say, well, the tomb wasn't empty. Um, All of these people that went to the empty tomb, Peter and John, Mary and Mary, they went to the wrong tomb. There's a big problem with that, too. If the tomb's not empty, produce the body. Then you go to the right tomb, bring the body out for everyone to see, and Christianity is done. has no basis upon which to stand. These false teachings, these ways of dealing with it, disintegrate under scrutiny. Some say the disciples were delusional. You know what's kind of weird about delusions? They don't happen in mass. If we all had a delusion today, it would not be of the same thing. You know, you'd be seeing pink teddy bears and you'd be seeing blue elephants and you'd be seeing whatever. You don't, the, the nature of hallucination is not a group effort. So it comes down to this. The evidence for the resurrection demands a verdict. Listen to this. The empty grave and the disappearance of the body argue for something to have happened. If you don't believe that the disciples stole the body because the excuse doesn't bear up, 
you've got to come up with something. The dramatic transformation of the disciples attests to the reality of the resurrection. This is a scared bunch. And yet they get so transformed that they're willing to go to the death telling the story of Jesus' resurrection. The very existence of the church is tangible evidence that Christ's resurrection is true. The witness of Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, confirms that the reality of the resurrection is true. The Lord's Day being changed from Saturday to Sunday stems from the reality of the resurrection. And the resurrection is the only fitting climax to the life of Jesus. Nothing else fits with everything that we've seen from him. So the question for you is, have you truly investigated the reality of the resurrection? Does it make a difference in your life? And notice I didn't ask, does it make a difference in your afterlife? Does it make a difference in where you go when you die? Does it make a difference in your life? Because that's the message of the gospel, that it changes everything, not just your destination. It changes your journey. It changes your priorities. It changes your desires. Matthew concludes his story of the gospel with the disciples finally traveling to Galilee where they meet the risen Lord. And it's here that we hear the command of our risen, victorious, resurrected, and conquering King in verses 16 through 20. The scriptures say this. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. We don't know what that is. It may be the mountain where he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we don't know. It'd be kind of a cool place to go back to a place that they had had some experiences together as a band of disciples. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came near, and he said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And remember, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. For the first time in Matthew's Gospel, the disciples get it right. It's kind of hard to do when you have a resurrected, hard to get it wrong when you've got a resurrected man standing right in front of you. But for the first time, they worship him fully and freely. And we get a little... um, a little concerned when we see that it says they worshipped him, but some doubted. Let me help you here a little bit on this, because um, just like words in Greek can have multiple meanings, there are shades of nuance that are different for this word doubted. Personally, I think that the better translation for this is that some hesitated. Why do you hesitate? Because you have doubt. Um, I just think it it helps us to understand there weren't disciples going, well, it's not really Jesus. Here's what I think was happening. They're like, You remember what happened on the road to Emmaus? You had two disciples that walked with Jesus and didn't recognize him. So there are are people that are trying to figure out, all right, looks like Jesus, sounds like Jesus, talks like Jesus. Is that Jesus? Hesitant. I think there are some disciples going, yeah, that's Jesus. I wonder if now's the time for our spanking. I, I fled. You know, there maybe there's some of that hesitation. Maybe some of them are going, Oh my goodness, that's Jesus. What do I do? What's the right thing to do? I've never been around a resurrected man before. So when you hear that they doubted, I'm not trying to explain Scripture away at all. I'm trying to provide some context because the the, the story of the resurrection, all of it is good. How many of you have ever expressed any hesitation in your obedience? 
or any doubt about God doing what he said he's going to do. Doubt is a part of our life. Again, the church is a place for us to bring our doubts to be encouraged to follow him. What I love is in the conclusion to Matthew's gospel, in this resurrection appearance of Jesus to his disciples, the emphasis is not on Jesus' resurrection, it's on his teaching. Jesus shows up in verses 16 through 20, and verses uh, 18 through 20 are all a direct quote from Jesus. Like, I want to know what his body looked like. I want to know, like, did he feel the same? Did he look the same? Did he look younger? Were the wrinkles gone? Did he lose gray hair? I'm asking that for a reason. Um, you know, does, was he skinnier? Was he plumper? What, 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 what happened? Can he fly? Can he walk through walls? And there's none of that. Instead, Jesus here at this point can say whatever he wants. And he could say, hey guys, I want you to know it's really important you love one another because all men will know that you are disciples by the love you have for one another. He could have addressed the doctrine of she say, hey guys, listen, uh, I'm, I'm resurrected. There's going to be all kinds of false truths that come out, so pay careful attention to your doctrine. He could have said, hey, ethics are very important. And, you know, there's going to be crazy things that happen in the future, so how you live is very important. He doesn't deal with doctrine. He doesn't deal with love. He doesn't deal with ethics. He deals with our mission. And he says three things about it here in closing that are very important for us to get. He begins by making a universal claim. A universal claim. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. The word all means all. So he says, just to kind of give you an illustration, I got all the authority up there, I got all the authority down here, and if there's any other place where there can be authority, I have authority there. So you, you sci-fi geeks, if there's a fifth dimension, he's got authority there. If there's uh, a netherworld, an underworld, he's got authority there. He has all authority. And what he's saying here is he's going, let me make this really clear for you. I'm resurrected. So that means I'm in charge. I'm in charge. I'm not your cute and cuddly baby. I'm not your BFF. I am your resurrected king. And God has so sealed the deal that he has given me all authority. I am in charge. And friends, what that means for you is if he's not in charge of you, you do not belong to him. Now, I'm not saying you slip up once. I'm saying if you are perpetually living as the Lord of your life, there's not room for two. Either you wear the crown or he does. And he's saying, all right, you want to wear the crown? You get resurrected? You get resurrected? Here's the crown. You can have it. Oh, you didn't get resurrected? Oh, yeah, that's me? Yeah, I'm in charge. All authority has been given to me. And because he says that, he gives a universal command. All of you who believe in me, I'm in charge. You will go. You don't get to choose whether to obey or not. I mean, that is the issue. You either obey or you disobey. You have been commissioned by your resurrected king to go. And he says that when we go, there are four actions that we will do. We will, we will be in the process of going. We will be in the process of discipling. We will be in the process of baptizing. We will be in the process of teaching. Technically, there's only one verb in that whole list of actions, and that's make disciples. 
And he says, here's how you make disciples. You go. So whether you go to Africa or India or Kathmandu or Walmart or Publix, as you go, your chief objection is not to complete your honey-do list. It is to take the gospel with you. It's to say, hey, thanks for checking me out today. What can I pray for for you? And hope that God enables that little bitty, tiny, little, not hard spiritual conversation to maybe snowball into something a little bit bigger. A chance for you to testify to the Lord. You go. You make disciples. How do you make disciples? Baptizing and teaching. You present the gospel clear enough that people submit themselves to identifying with Jesus. Baptism is not just getting wet. It's part of the Great Commission. It's the way that we identify, get united, get married to Christ. It is our public confession of faith, being baptized. And then once you're baptized, you teach them to obey. How many of you lead a Bible study? Sunday school, Bible study. Anybody in here? Don't be embarrassed. That's a great thing to do. There's a difference between teaching and teaching to obey. Which do you do? You just fill up people's heads with information so they'll be really they'll have all eternity to play Bible trivia in hell. Or are you teaching them to obey? Teachers, let me let me tell you, I'm not saying that to guilt you. I'm I'm saying that's a verse that keeps me awake at night. Am I just spouting out information? Or am I helping people to be transformed by the truth of God's word? Because Christians don't fulfill the Great Commission by teaching. They fulfill it by teaching people to obey. That's hard. Giving information is easy. Helping people to obey, that's difficult. Third universal statement that Jesus makes is an offer of universal comfort. He says, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He's saying, there is no place. I have told you to go. And there is no place that you will go that I'm not going to be present with you. And I love this. Because it, 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 not today it's cold, but it has been cold this week. And so if you're cheap like me and you keep your thermostat set too low for everyone else in your house, you know, uh, put some clothes on, get a blanket, and you're good to go, you know. Jesus wraps us in a divine blanket as he gives us this commission because he says, I have all authority and I am giving it to you to go. Here's the go, here's the authority, but then the blanket on the other side is his presence, his comfort. So he says, go. He, he says, I am with you. He says, I have authority. He says, I am with you. And in the middle of that is our obedience in going. That's awesome. His authority, his comfort, we are protected. We don't need to be scared and proclaiming to God, oh, I'm going to make it worse for them. They're already going to hell. You cannot make anything worse. You have his authority. You have his presence. So be bold, be fearless. He's taking care of everything. He's wrapped it around you. It's just a question of whether you will be obedient in the moment. This is not the grand suggestion. It is a command. <clears throat> in the holiday season, it could be possible that your experience is that everybody else seems to be more in the spirit than you are. You've had way too much Yuletide cheer already this Christmas season. And it just seems like Christmas is more significant to everyone than you. 
And even in this most sacred of holidays, as we celebrate God breaking into the world and incarnating Himself in the person of His Son, it is possible uh, for you who have named the name of Christ to feel like God is very far away. Let me challenge you and at the same time offer you a tremendous piece of hope. In King James, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. There is no low God's presence where there is no go. There is no low where there is no go. So perhaps for you, the reason that God seems far away is you're not obeying Him. That's a really tough way to conclude a sermon, isn't it? You're not obeying. You know what's great? The chastisement is also the salve. It's the medicine. Do you want to experience God more? Then give Him the gift this Christmas of obeying Him in some way different than you did last year. Find a way to be involved in pushing the Great Commission out, whether it's at your workplace, in your neighborhood, in this church, or to the nations. You, you may not go, but you can enable other people to go on your behalf. And you know what happens? When you do that with the right motivation, you go with them, even though the physical proximity of your body doesn't change locations. You have the opportunity to go through people as you support the cause of God in the world. When you go, you experience the presence, the comfort, and the authority of God in your life in a way that you never will when you don't obey. Father, we are grateful for the gift of your Son. We pray that while we watch these commercials of people with cars and bows on them in their front yard, that we won't for a second think that that's a better gift than what you have done for us in your Son, our Savior and our King. I pray this morning that you will help us to be confronted by that resurrection reality in a new way that 2017 can be a year both for us personally and corporately as a church to do more when it comes to your great commission here and abroad that we will believe with great fervor that the greatest problem that this world has is not who's in the White House but the lack of knowledge of you. Father, I pray this morning if there are those that don't know you or perhaps know you from afar that this holiday season can be a chance of renewal and repentance and finding you wrapped up as this most beautiful present under the Christmas tree of their life. That they will know you, that they will love you, that they will serve you. God, for those of us that have been believers, perhaps even for a long time, challenge our obedience. Create within us a desire for a deeper walk with you. Today, if there are any that need to have those conversations. Father, at the end of our service, allow them to come and talk to one of our staff, one of our deacons, that we might encourage them this holiday season to have that walk with